Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine, the in-depth one-on-one conversations we have here at Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf, your host. Today we're fortunate to be joined by General James Clapper, uh, one of America's intelligence community's most distinguished leaders uh, and the author earlier this year of a book, Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Uh, General, I understand from reading the book and reading a lot about the book that it was never really your intention to write such a memoir. What led you to do it? Well, you're well. You're right. I, I had not, uh, even though people urged me just to uh, record the 50 years or so I spent in intelligence, but um, really wasn't going to do it. And what I think the the major catalyst was uh, experiencing and watching what the Russians did to interfere uh, in our election in 2016, uh, and more and more evidence of that has uh, has come out recently, and that. Uh, kind of motivated me to um, record uh, my observations and do my part, to, uh, my little part, to try to educate uh, the American public uh, about the threat, profound threat posed by Russia, to, uh, who is still bent on undermining our fundamental system. So that was the that was the major reason. So as you look at that, and as you look at the course of a uh, uh, a career that spanned 50 years, and I, I believe your father was in the intelligence community too, uh, there has been this evolution uh, of intelligence that has tracked with the arrival of the information age uh, and has enabled this Russian intelligence operation to become something quite unlike any past uh, such operation. It's ubiquitous, it's global, uh, and it affects all of us seemingly all the time. Uh, we're aware of it, and yet it's hard to stop. It takes advantage of the way our system works, uh, and yet undermines the system at the same time. Uh, it seems like this is kind of almost the apotheosis of a lot of, of, of the work that had been done over the course of your career, um, uh, and has brought intelligence right to the center of everything right now. Uh, I think you're right. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest single factor that has uh, uh, impacted or influenced U.S. intelligence uh, over that 50 years has been technology. Uh, that is, technology available to us and, and then technology available to uh, our adversaries. So with all the uh, wonderful benefits of the Internet and all the uh, attendant uh, capabilities that that gives us in society, uh, it is also uh, a double-edged sword, as all technology is. And so the Russians, 
who have always used uh, information as as a weapon uh, have taken advantage of the uh, huge potential that's afforded them um, for uh, dispersing misinformation and influencing opinion with the uh, enabler of the internet and specifically social media. And so this is yet another technological phenomenon that has had a huge impact on, on intelligence and, and actually, uh, you know, changed, changed our, changed the mission of the intelligence community to, to, to some extent. Do you think the intelligence community has been, uh, adapting effectively to those changes? I do. Uh, people can always, uh, you, you can always do the, you know, should have done it faster, quicker, you know, whatever. But uh, I, I do think that over the years, uh, you know, we've we've adopted and adjusted uh, as we needed to. I think that one of the current challenges we have, of course, now is just uh, the huge volume of data that uh, has to be contended with. Uh, in my early years, we were always data poor, and now we are very data rich. So, you know, that requires uh, a lot of adjustment and taking advantage of tools like, for example, artificial intelligence to help us contend with all that volume of data. Yeah, it's interesting um, in the context of, you know, perhaps not the story you would think I would turn to first, but, you know, the, the there's a story that has broken just today about Facebook sharing data with uh, other members of the tech community. And the reality is that massive businesses have grown up, the biggest businesses of our times, uh, that are essentially, in, in some ways, intelligence businesses, collecting information on every citizen all the time in real time. You know, George Orwell wrote about Big Brother, but it was the government. And in this case, really, what's happening is the government has collection capabilities, but Facebook, Google, you know, Yahoo, Apple, all these companies are collecting all of this data. Um, and, it, and, and that, you know, creates a treasure trove for governments and other bad actors who want to get at it, I presume. Um, and, and it all of a sudden makes the issue of counterintelligence dramatically more difficult than it was. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Well, it's a fair assessment. I think the other issue it raises is uh, all this, you know, uh, privacy concerns <clears throat> that this technology uh, affords or, or presents. <clears throat> and I, could, I can't help when I read these articles about these reports of how uh, social media uh, providers are sharing the data that they gather on citizens. And I, having lived through uh, the aftermath of Edward Snowden revelations and the outcry about the intrusive mass surveillance of the government, well, the commercial providers make whatever the government was doing pale by comparison. Um, and you know, if you have an electronic footprint of any sort these days, you are giving up your privacy. And uh, the, the this is these are powerful tools uh, 
uh, that the that available to social media providers, and there's not much guarantee, frankly, of uh, one's privacy. And that, that to me, is uh, perhaps a bigger issue than than the counterintelligence one. Another issue that you point out in the book, which I I, I think is, uh, you know, insightful and in some ways, um, even more worrisome than 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 perhaps some of the intelligence activities you talk about, is what you characterize as the rise of unpredictable instability in the United States. In other words, that we had looked at that in other countries and adversary countries. Um, uh, we saw it as a problem and as something sometimes to take advantage of, but that we in this country had begun to show, as, as you say, many of the same characteristics of instability we used to assess in other nation states. And I was wondering if you might elaborate on that and, and, and how that trend has evolved as you watched it. Well, the, uh, what that refers to is, uh, you know, the methodologies that, uh, developed in the intelligence community, notably in, uh, in CIA, for gauging, measuring uh, levels of stability or instability in uh, foreign nation states. And uh, more and more nations uh, overseas are exhibiting some of the characteristics of uh, instability. And we in this country are, uh, I think, we, as a result of being caught up in uh, the wave of populism, which is not unique to the, to the United States, it's also we're also seeing it in, in, in Europe. And social media actually uh, is an enabler for either promoting stability or instability, uh, as the case may be. And uh, in our case, um, you know, the assaults on our institutions, the assaults on those uh, enterprises or endeavors that depend on truth, uh, science, uh, academics, uh, law enforcement, intelligence, uh, journalism. Uh, when you see those, those endeavors under assault in other countries, uh, that is a sign of instability, and we've certainly seen seen that in, in our country. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it raises another issue that seems to be at the central center of, of the discussion and the relations between the intelligence community and the uh, um, civilian political community today, and, and it has been for a while, and that is the issue of, of trust. Um, and... You know, of course, the issue comes, you know, comes with a lot of baggage. There's, you know, the presumption of the uninitiated that, that you know, everything that intelligence produces is truth. Uh, I, I remember during the debate about um, the Iraq war and, and the intelligence on WMD that I had a conversation with a guy you perhaps knew in the course of your career, General Andy uh Good paster, and 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 he said to me that you know Eisenhower would have had no patience with this debate because you know he knew as a consumer of intelligence what to trust and what not to trust. And Good Pester said to me that he remembered standing with Eisenhower during 
the, the right couple weeks before the Battle of the Bulge, getting intelligence saying, ignore the German troop movements around, you know, Belgium, uh, that they, they won't amount to anything. And so he'd lived through that. And, and, and of course, we get civilian leaders who haven't lived through that. We get people who try to take advantage of it. But I, I was wondering, perhaps you could address the, 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 the evolving state of, of civilian IC relations and the, the trust factor. Well, just speaking generally, uh, ever since I've been in intelligence, there's always been suspicion about what the intelligence community is up to and what it's doing. And that's inherently because of the secrecy required uh, of intelligence. And um, that's why the, the two oversight committees uh, in the Congress, one in the House and one in the Senate, are so important because the members of those committees and the committees as a body have to act as surrogates for the American public to ensure that what the intelligence community is doing is legal, moral, ethical, and appropriate. So there's this, there's this trust thing, uh, which I think requires the intelligence community to be as transparent as possible. And of course, transparency for the intelligence community is a two-edged sword. It's great for uh, establishing and sustaining trust in the public but adversaries go to work, go to school on that same uh, transparency. I, I think another dimension of, of your question has to do with uh, the trust that a, that a user of intelligence, a customer, be it a policymaker, a diplomat, uh, a military organization, uh, how much trust that they have in, in the intelligence that, that they're receiving. And, in any position I occupied in intelligence, I always tried to uh, point out, you know, what we know and what we don't know and why we don't know it, what, what we're trying to do to find out what we don't know. But you're always dealing with a degree of uncertainty in intelligence. Rarely will intelligence completely eliminate uncertainty. The best it can do is reduce uncertainty for a decision maker, whether a decision maker is uh, in an Oval Office or in, if I can stretch the metaphor, Oval Foxhole. Uh, and, and that's, to me, uh, is the challenge for intelligence is enlightening, but also ab about what we know substantively, but also pointing out always uh, the limitations uh, of intelligence. And it requires an educational process uh, between an intelligence officer and those uh, that he or she is serving. Um, as, as, as we look at the situation now, though, I, I think we've obviously entered a, a new chapter in that relationship. And um, as, you know, somebody commented on the uh, uh, early, earlier today following the news that the president um, had made a decision to pull out of Syria, um, that this president mm -hmm. has, in the course of a couple of years, not only gone into office essentially waging war against the intelligence community, in part, I think, due to findings that you reached on Russia uh, during the, the pre-election and transition period, but, you know, if, if, you, if you sort of want to take the four, you know, four big issues, and in the, in the, he's he's 
dismissed the conclusions of the intelligence community on Russia and the election. He's dismissed them on MBS's role in the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi. He's dismissed them with regard to uh, reports of North Korea um, actually building up its uh, nuclear weapons arsenal, missile arsenal. Uh, And today, apparently, has dismissed them with regard to um, the current uh, state of of the Islamic State within Syria uh, and uh, and its viability as an organization there and elsewhere. Um, that's pretty extraordinary, I, I, I think. I mean, there's always some back and forth, but you would you grant that this is, you know, a new and particularly difficult chapter in the relationship between the president and the IC? Yeah, I, I think uh, it probably is. Uh, the only other... Uh uh, case I can recall, uh, of course, was Richard Nixon, who had deep suspicions about uh, particularly CIA. And of course, this is long before uh, the uh, intelligence community is configured as it is today. I think uh, on a philosophical plane, a policymaker, uh, a user or customer of intelligence uh, can accept or reject it as he or she sees fit. Um, I think rejecting it or ignoring it over over time, if it if it's a uh, a habit or a fixture, uh, you, you know, you, the policymaker does so at at his or her peril, and and in this case, the peril of the country. But again, it is his prerogative uh, to decide whether to listen to the intelligence or not. Now, that doesn't in any way relieve the obligation of the intelligence community to convey truth to power, even if the power chooses to ignore the truth. But again, that is, that is his prerogative. Uh, well, it's certainly his prerogative up to a point. And I think the point would be when he starts failing to uphold his, uh, his oath of office or his obligation uh, and and duties to his office or the constituents that elected him. Uh, and in the Russia situation, we seem to have come perilously close to that point where you you it, it, the the case of dismissing the findings of the intelligence community could be an honest disagreement, or it could be an effort to cover up the finding. Right. I mean. Well, in this in this particular case. Um, and we ran into this very early on uh, when we, I say we, the director of FBI, NSA, and CIA, and I uh, went to Trump Tower on the 6th of January on 2017 to brief then-President-elect Trump about our findings in, in the intelligence community assessment, which uh, version of which we published in unclassified form so the public could have access to it as well. And uh, you're right. He just had great difficulty, great difficulty uh, accepting uh, what we presented, because, principally because it cast doubt on the legitimacy of his election. Uh, but that was that's what we saw, and it was our obligation to uh, you know tee that up and uh, and and point it out to him. And he's been pretty consistent. 
uh, ever since uh, about that whole, the whole subject of uh, the Russian meddling in our political processes, which continues yet today. Well, yeah, and in fact, well, a couple of questions on that, but I think one of the one things that strikes me and is touched upon in your book, but I, I actually don't think anybody has really quite gotten into it fully enough, is, is the degree to which the Russian meddling in our election, uh, and I think meddling is a benign term and it's something more egregious than that, but, I, but the degree to which it's part of a broader effort, an effort that included um, meddling in the, uh, the, the Brexit vote in the UK, uh, and included some similar actors, whether they be uh, Cambridge Analytica, Steve Bannon, you know, Nigel Farage and some of his communications with uh, certain actors as well as with Trump, as well as the Russian interventions in the French elections, the German elections, Hungarian elections, Polish elections, Italian elections. Um, you know, the, the, the Russians have been seeking to actively destabilize the Atlantic Alliance and to destabilize democracies by using their openness against them and by picking hot-button issues uh, that have, would raise um, nationalism um, uh, uh, and, 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 and undermine internationalism. Uh, as part of one of the most massive sweeping and, 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 and candidly successful intelligence operations of all time. And I think if we view just Trump-Russia apart from that, we diminish it because there is a strategic objective associated with it that's greater than it. Do you agree? Or? I do. Uh, I have to say, though, you know, the Russians have a long history of interfering in uh, political processes of other countries, specifically um, well, their own country, for that matter, um, and specifically uh, European countries and, and now ours, um, but never, ever on a scale uh, and the pervasiveness and the multidimensional nature of, the, of what they did in the election of 2016. And as the uh, reports that were uh, commissioned by the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, indicate, which uh, I, actually gratifying to me because it just enriches and reinforces uh, what we said, and we probably only scratched the surface of the very sophisticated and very broad gauge use of social media to influence and undermine uh, political processes in our country. And the reason they do it is this is a relatively cost beneficial way of compensating for their, their weaknesses. And when they, weak, when they believe they're weakening us, first by attacking individual countries in Europe and then driving wedges between and among them and a wedge between Europe and the United States, that serves their strategic advantage as they see it and uh, contributes to their image of, of great Russia. Yeah. Now, you know, Donald Trump's been involved with Russia since the 80s and has tried to gain a foothold there for a long time um, and has had relations, as we've discovered, at a, at a fairly high level there, uh, or at least sought relations at a fairly high level there for commercial reasons for some time. Um, as somebody experienced with the way Russian intelligence works, 
How early on do you think they spot somebody like that and see that as a target of opportunity? And where have we sort of fallen down in allowing such a target of opportunity to develop? Well, uh, one, I think there was uh, uh, some naivete. Um, you know, there's always been a, a certain ambient level of Russian interference, Russian uh, collection, Russian reconnaissance in our country, but we never saw it on the scale that we did uh, in the run-up uh, to the election. And of course, because of the polarization and divisiveness in this country, uh, we are a very ripe target for uh, Russia. Now, a lot of things have been done to sort of technically or administratively or bureaucratically uh, secure our voting apparatus. The much more difficult challenge, though, is uh, getting people to question um, and not accept at face value everything they see, read, or hear on the Internet. And that is a very, very, very difficult uh, uh, problem, very difficult challenge for us or any country. But the Russians will continue, you know, as long as, you know, he's not pushing back. They're going to continue to do this. Um, so in the middle of all of this was somebody who certainly should have known better, and that's General Flynn, who had been the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency and was a career intelligence person. Um, and, you know, his position in the middle of all of this, uh, as there seemed to have been multiple efforts by Russians to reach out to Trump campaign members, as many as 14 different campaign members, and multiple avenues of potential influence from commercial dealings and financial dealings um, uh, to, to, to these kind of direct intercession, not to mention the, the NRA. How do you explain the, 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 the presence of a former leader of the intelligence community as the top national security advisor to the president throughout this process. And did you interact with him on as you were briefing him? Was he in that meeting? Uh, are you talking about uh, Mike Flynn? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I certainly did engage uh, with him um, one one specific occasion about just being wary of the Russians. Um, you know, they will attempt to uh, woo, uh, if I can use that word, uh, directors of, you know, any, any senior intelligence official, and particularly in the, case, in the case of DI, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, its nominal Russian counterpart is, is the GRU. And I think Mike Flynn felt that there was common ground between the U.S. and Russia with respect to counterterrorism. And that uh, he felt very strongly that that area of commonality where our interests converge, that he, we should work that. And I just, I did engage with him once when he was still director of DIA, which is a job I had in the early 90s, about just being careful about the Russians and their ulterior motives. But he brushed it off because he said he had an agenda. 
Well, in, I, in terms of, I, I won't. I don't think he, he brushed it off. I think he he took it aboard, but um, you know he left government service in in uh, in 2014, and uh, I think he pursued that objective uh, when he you know unfettered by any constraints. Uh, being uh, by you know being in the government, and I I, I think he he still felt that um, there was uh, common ground between the Russians and and us. I heard the same theme from uh, President-elect Trump uh, when he when we were in the course of our discussion about the intelligence community assessment uh, on Russia, Russia's interference. And he posed the question to us: and Wouldn't it be great if we? Wouldn't it be better if we could get along with the Russians? Well, sure, if our when our interests converge. But um, for my part, the Russians are simply up to no good, and uh, they're certainly an anathema to to our interests. And so, uh, I always counseled: You know, eyes wide open if you're going to deal with the Russians. And if you have an intelligence exchange with them, it's a one-way street. Uh, they want our information. They're very loath to share any of theirs. Well, and indeed, you know, they seem to have won victory after victory. Uh, you know, to to my mind, rather shockingly, in the you know, in the light of the the Trump Russia uh, revelations. But you know, they they've just gone ahead, and the administration has. Granted them considerable leeway with regard to Ukraine, considerable leeway with regard to sanctions, considerable leeway with regard to now pulling out of this INF treaty rather than trying to enforce it. Uh, and then today, um, this apparent decision to pull out of Syria, um, which has to be seen as a victory uh, for the Russians, for the Iranians, and also. For the Turks, there seems to be some discussion that there was a conversation between Erdogan and Trump on this, and that may have fed into it, possibly tied to the Khashoggi thing. But, but just you—you you obviously were closely involved in 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 observing and considering the situation in Syria. Um, what's your reaction to the news of today? Well, first of all, I think uh, looking back on my time in the last administration, uh, you know, the almost, almost six and a half years I served as DNI, I think the most intractable uh, regional problem that we confronted was Syria, you know, what to do about it. And the Russians uh, feel very, very strongly about maintaining their relationship with, with uh, Syria, which has long been uh, a surrogate of theirs. And they were bound and determined to keep their foothold in the Mediterranean. And so when they uh, asserted, inserted themselves in, into Syria, and of course their objective was to prop up a war criminal, Assad, uh, our interests, I think, would have been, you know, some stability uh, in Syria, which is very hard to come by. And in the meantime, it's a humanitarian uh disaster. But there's probably a greater strategic interest on the part of the Russians in Syria than, than ours. The problem with pulling out is uh, this will have, I think, a lot of implications. 
one, I don't think uh, ISIS is completely defeated. We've certainly done a lot to reduce their uh, the uh, attributes of a nation state that they exhibited, uh, territory, number of fighters, uh, finances, uh, combat assets, and all that. But the movement is still there. And so uh, I think to some extent we do so with our at our own peril uh, by, I think, giving ISIS a, a freer reign. The other thing that we, I think we did by our presence there is kind of kept the Turks at bay to a certain extent because, of course, uh, for their part, you know, any, any Kurd is a bad Kurd, and that, that's their interest in suppressing uh, under the guise of the PKK, but any other uh, Kurdish group or Kurdish movement. So I wonder what the impact's going to be, uh, particularly on those those Kurds who have worked with us, who've been our surrogates in the pursuit of uh, ISIS. So it's a very complex situation here. I think um, the with, with the precipitate withdrawal of the U.S. is going to have uh, consequences that, uh, you know, we, we, we can't foresee. Well, it's just, you know, there's the, it comes as a part of a kind of avalanche of news. It's very hard to sort it all out. You know, I just saw a story, uh, as we were sitting down to do this, that just, you know, here is another victory Trump gives not only to Putin, but also to Assad and the Iranians. But at the same time, you know, the treasury department just, notified Congress that it intends to terminate sanctions on the companies of Oleg Deripaska, um, who is an oligarch in the middle of this whole thing. Um, and, and it, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, are, are you not sometimes astonished at the bald-facedness of the quid pro quos here? Yeah, I, I have not seen that, uh, but I... I really have trouble uh, understanding what good that's, what is that going to do? It seems to, uh, you know, it appears to me to be a big concession to, to, to Russia. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of several. Let me ask you one more question in this, this vein. We, we, we just have a couple of minutes left. Um, in talking to um, uh people who are involved in the congressional investigation uh, of, the, of this current situation uh, and in reading stories about the direction that some of the Mueller may take, it looks like there's also going to be an avenue looking at the efforts to sort of take advantage of Trump's transactionalism from the, a government such as uh, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the, the Israelis. Um, and, uh, you know, in the wake of Trump's election, there was a lot of sort of buzz out there, different governments thinking, well, how do we play this? And one of them was he's a very transactional guy. And I'm just wondering if you have a perspective on this that suggests to you that you know, there were other governments that were doing other kinds of meddling, either prior to the election or during the transition? Well, not on the scale that the Russians were. I mean, there's a certain, I mean, there's always 
a certain amount of uh, activities surrounding foreign governments who want to gain access, gain favor with an oncoming administration. So you always have a certain amount of that uh, in any event. Um, what, but what all what bothered me and uh, lots of others uh, has been this: why being why so solicitous of, of the Russians of all people, our, our arch enemy? And that's been very hard to understand. I, I mean, obviously the the Israelis are very active politically in this country. They have a you know very effective uh, lobby effort on the on the hill. Uh, and same with the Saudis. So there's a certain amount of this that you're going to have in any event. But what has really uh, concerned me personally and take, has been uh, this uh, deference to, to Russia. Um, yeah, well, of course, you know, in the in the case of Mike Flynn, there was also actually transactions with the Turks, um, which led the judge yesterday to... Uh, ask and then withdraw a question about whether treason was involved here. Um, some people have speculated that it, this also came from reading some of the materials that Mueller was involved in. And of course, they're very, it's a heavy word, and there's very specific legal definitions associated with it. But I do think you can, you know, we, we have enough information at this point to suggest that there was a broad effort across this campaign to um, solicit the support of the Russians uh, and to take advantage of support that was proffered by the Russians. Uh, there was strong parallelism in the da digital data strategies of the campaign and the Russians. Uh, and now, subsequent to that, as we've discussed, there have been a series of kind of quid pro quos having to do with sanctions and other kinds of policies and deference to the Russians and obstruction of justice and, and uh, 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 you know, dismissal of the U.S. intelligence community or the FBI in favor of the views offered up of the Russians. It has to, it has to add up to a, a kind of betrayal that we've never seen before on the part of the, um, on the, part of the leaders of the U.S. federal government. Um, and you've used some strong language on this in the past, and I'm just wondering, as more of this information has evolved, you know, what is the current state of your thinking on the nature of that betrayal? Well, I, you know, I, I await, as many others do, uh, the conclusion of Mueller's investigation. If we're going to have insight uh, on this whole situation, I think our only hope is the uh, successful completion of Mueller's investigation. Um, I, you know, I don't understand it. it. You know, lately it appears that this may devolve around uh, purely uh, a, a commercial uh, or revenue-generating uh, proposition with the Russians. I don't know, uh, you know, the, the the full extent of this, but I do know that this whole issue is uh, is a cloud over our country is a cloud over this presidency and we badly need to have it resolved and so we understand uh, why this uh, again why this deference to Russia 
well, certainly everybody is on the edge of their seat. Now, at least in addition to Mueller, there are multiple parallel investigations. And in fact, um, one tally has it at 17 at this point. So we shall we shall see where they take us in 2019. Uh, perhaps we'll be able to speak with you again. In the meantime, it's been a pleasure uh, to, to speak with you. Uh, as I indicated, we've been joined by General James Clapper, who uh, had a 54-year long career in the military and intelligence community, uh, ending with a, a stint as the director of national intelligence. His book is Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. I strongly recommend it to everyone. Thank you very much, General Clapper. Thanks for having me. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.